You know, if you were to open the Bible to the first verse, the first four words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God. If you have just enough faith to get on board with those first four words, then everything that comes after that is okay. It makes, it makes sense. If in the beginning, God, then whatever he says after that is okay. And if you actually read that whole first sentence, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made, however he did it, he made something out of nothing. Whatever that might have looked like, whatever that process was, God made something out of nothing. The importance of it to us isn't just to understand creation and how that happened. The importance of it in this moment is to understand that God can make something out of nothing in your life. God can make uh, a bad situation turn into something good and useful and beautiful in your life. Having faith to believe that is the first step to seeing that happen. God makes things new. And that might be a process in your life. Chances are it probably won't look the way you envision it looking. But James said that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And right now, I want to encourage you to start that regenerating, renewing process in your life by just drawing near to God in your own heart, in your own mind. Lindsay's going to lead us in one more. About 30 minutes or so to be together. Uh, I'm going to have Angie play a video here in just a second. And I'd love for you to just just tune into the video. If you were there last week, which some of you were at Easter, um, you, you saw the same video. It's the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. So go right ahead, Angie. There was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, father I want right now what's coming to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and took a trip to a distant land. And Where there he waste- wasted all his money in wild living. He had spent everything. When a bad famine spread through that whole land, soon he had nothing he to He was eat. hungry and needed money. So he went and got a job with one of the people who lived there. The man sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He would have been glad to eat what the pigs were eating, but no one gave him a thing. Finally, when he, he came, came to, his, to senses. his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But let me be like one of your hired workers. So he left and he went to his father. While the son was still a long way While off, his he was still a long way off. He felt sorry for him. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. So he ran to him and arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against God and have done wrong to you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father said to his servants. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the best calf and prepare it. Bring the fat calf and and celebrate. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead, but has now gone back to life. And has returned to life. He was lost and is found. He was lost so the party and is began. found. So they began to celebrate. And they began to have a wonderful time. This is the story of 
the prodigal son. It's a, it's a fairly familiar story. Uh, you might be familiar with it, whether you've been in church or not. Over the last uh, 2,000 years, it's been told and retold and retold millions of times, probably. And we started talking about this story last week at Easter, and uh, man, it was such a great experience uh, at Easter. Uh, I was reflecting on it this week, and I was thinking about the fact that, you know, we spent more and worked more and gathered more than we ever have as a church, and I was thinking actually about someone who wasn't there last week, um, a, a friend of mine who, uh, who, a young man in his 20s, he for years struggled with mental illness, uh, depression, um, post-traumatic stress, had some unbelievable circumstances that most of us would only imagine in his life, and, and it was last year that he actually lost his battle with that mental illness. It, it cost him his life, and, uh, and he wasn't there, and I was reflecting on, just thinking about him and realizing that, you know, the only exposure he ever had to Jesus was through some of the people who were part of this church, was through us. The only, the only opportunity he ever had to see Jesus at work in his life was through many of you. And it just reminded me how important the things that we do really are. You know, we went down to the school and, uh, you know, it was fun. You know, a lot of us were there. We did all this work and it it went great and it was a lot of fun. But I realized, like, the reason, the reason that we do that is to help people know Jesus. Because the truth is we have a very limited amount of time in each other's lives. Some of you have been alive long enough to see people come and go and you know what I'm talking about. But we we have a definite amount of time that we get to spend together. And, and it just reminded me how important it is for us to do what we do as a church, to help people know Jesus. Because the truth is, Jesus has new and better things for your life and for mine. And people need to know that. So I was just so encouraged, excited about what happened last week. And I just want to say, way to go. Uh, so many of you invested your time and energy in that. Um, and it was, it was really fruitful for a lot of people. So way to go on that. We started talking about this story of the prodigal son, and I want to introduce to you something that will be highly controversial. Some will love it, and some will absolutely hate it, and that is this guy right here, the alarm clock. Either the best or the worst invention probably of all time, depending on, uh, depending on your personal feelings. But only slightly worse than the alarm clock, in my opinion, is the little button right on top of the alarm clock, the snooze button. Somebody thought that would be a good idea. So let's just do a little sample. Anybody here a snooze button person? Do we have snooze button hitters? Okay, that's a strong percentage. Wow. Uh, That's just, I'm not a snooze button person, so I wouldn't have guessed that high. Uh, Okay, so uh, the rest of you, I'm going to assume you're not snooze button people. How many of you are not snooze button people, but you either do or have lived with someone who is? Okay. Wow, tough duty. That's a, that's, a, that's a bad deal. Thankfully, my wife is not a snooze button person. When I was younger, when I lived in my parents' house, I would actually, um, my bedroom was downstairs, everyone else is upstairs, and I would actually put my alarm clock in the hallway outside my room so that I would physically have to get up and go turn it off because I, at a very young age, this is like the only epiphany I had ever, uh, I realized that the snooze button was bit, built on this myth that somehow nine more minutes was going to make all the difference in my life. So let me ask you this. Has anybody ever hit the snooze button and then nine minutes later woke up totally refreshed? Does that, does that happen? Okay. Because um, my experience was that what the snooze button did was it just restarted the cycle of suffering. And you could hit it three, four, five times, and every time it's still a really rude awakening. No matter how many times you use it, you never stand up and go, okay, I'm good. 
I feel great now every time. It's just wah, wah, wah. It's a rude awakening. And isn't that just how life works? I mean, it's a, such an appropriate analogy, but have you ever avoided dealing with something difficult? Or had something difficult in front of you? You knew you should deal with it. You made you feel horrible because you knew you should deal with it, but you just punted it farther down the field only to come upon the same thing again and just feel just as terrible as you did before. Um, I mean, even like the simplest stuff, like you might be thinking like huge things like, uh, you know, addiction, relationships and that kind of stuff. I just mean like basic stuff. Like an example I used in the first service was uh, yesterday I took my boys to see the Lego Batman movie. It was pretty good. You should see it. It's at the Garland now, so only five bucks. Um, but before that, I took them to Zips, and uh, we ate w- disgustingly. Like, I'm ashamed just thinking about it. Uh, it's one of those places where I go and I eat there, and then, like, I physically feel like I need to take a shower when I'm done. Like, that can't be okay. Um, so we did that. But what's really unfortunate about that is that the day before, I had gone to Dennis's physique class, and then Dennis and Tiana came to our house, and Dennis, like, gave me a little coaching on, like, nutrition stuff. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I can do this, no problem. And then the next day, I'm at Zips. Someday, I'm going to start eating healthy, brother. Someday. Someday. I'm just going to keep kicking it down. And this is like the cycle, right? This, just a simple thing like that. It also happens in much more serious matters. Uh, the truth is, this pattern will become a serious matter if I keep pushing it, you know, punting it farther down the field. Uh, But this happens in life, right? Every time you come across it, it's still a rude awakening. Every time I think to myself, I need to start, like, eating better, like, I still don't like the idea. Like, I still know it's actually a serious thing, but I just keep pushing it farther and farther down. And God often uses these kind of rude awakenings in our lives, but what do we do when we have the option? Boom, hit the snooze button. Push it off until a little bit later. For me, this is what it looks like. I just try to get busy doing other things to serve as a distraction, to try to take my attention off the fact that I need to, I need to do this, all kinds of stuff. This could be like uh, painting my house. I bloom painting my house off for like three years, and finally I was just like ashamed of how my house looked. That was what made, I, was, I got that uncomfortable before I did it. Or for some people, it's things like planning for retirement. Oh, gosh, right now, like some of you are just like, ugh. I just got hit with it. Don't talk about that one. Uh, or dealing with, um, you know, a situation with, with your kids. Maybe there's something that they, they have like a serious need, but you don't want to deal with it, or a relationship, or any pattern of behavior. And last week, we, talked the, we started this series called Finding Your Way Back to God, and it's centered around this parable of the lost son. And we saw this lost son who has this series of pretty rude awakenings as he goes, as he goes through life. He wanders away from his home thinking that he was on a path that would lead him to satisfaction. That's that's really what happened. He wandered away from his home really assured that he was on the right path. And the truth is, when I read that story, I know that's my story too. I've done that. I think you've probably done that. And that's exactly why it rolled off Jesus' lips 2,000 years ago, so that you and I can see ourselves in this story and hopefully not get as far down the path as he did, not get to the point where the wake-up call is painfully rude like he did. That's exactly why Jesus wanted us to hear this story, because like Augustine said, Jesus is making the point that our souls remain restless until they find their rest in God. That's the reality of having an eternal soul, is that it finds its rest 
in God. And so we see a young man, he searches far, he searches wide for love, purpose, meaning. Those are all things that we do. We see him go down that journey and we realize, you know what, that's true for me too. I do the same thing. So um, just in a moment of honesty, have you ever had a situation where you thought you were going the right way and maybe even other people were telling you that you were doing it wrong, but you were just sure that you were right some people are, you know, depending on your personality, you might be more prone to, like, insisting on being right. But have you ever done that before and then found out later on, oh, shoot, I was wrong. Like, the other person was right. Like, sometimes you end up looking like the guys in this video that will be a flashback to many of your childhoods. Hey! Hey! Hey, what's going on? Some joker wants to race. That's ridiculous. All right, come on. Let's go. Let's go. Put your window down! You want something? Uh, he's probably drunk. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> what a moron. They're going in the wrong direction. You're going to kill somebody. You're going the wrong way. They just don't make them like they used to. Can I get an amen to that? If you're like under 35, you probably likely have never seen that movie. Thank God. Uh, but man, isn't that a funny situation? Like at times we just go down these courses in life under some false assumptions, thinking we're going the wrong way. Some serious ones might be entering into a relationship, thinking, okay, if I just get this the right person, if this is the right person, then I'm going to be then I'm going to be ultimately fulfilled, right? Or just thinking if I have the right amount of professional success, people are going to respect me, and then I'm going to be fulfilled. Or like the son in the story, he thought if I just get into this party scene, if I have the right social circle, I'm going to be ultimately fulfilled. There's all kinds of ways that can happen, and all of those things may or may not be fine under themselves, but the truth is none of them can fulfill my need for meaning and for purpose. And that's exactly the wake-up call that I'd love for us to be able to get today from, from this story. So often we have the opportunity to hit the snooze button, uh, but I want to jump into this. It might be a little bit painful. Uh, in fact, I know that if you're really open to God, like working your life, the truth is it will be kind of painful. I had a couple people mention that to me after the first service. 
Uh, so, uh, but I want to encourage you, like, be there. Be, be open to that. So we see in the story of the lost son, we see this young man who's pursued all kinds of things, all kinds of longings under some flawed assumptions. And he eventually gets to this place of living with a lot of regret. You ever regretted a decision? Uh, ever regretted a sequence of decision? It happens when we get far enough down the path that we probably knew we shouldn't have been on, but we get far enough down there that all of a sudden we're overwhelmed by what's all around us. And we have this thought, man, if I could do this over again, I'd do things differently. I've, I've been there. So if you're thinking, yeah, that's me, you don't need to like shrink down in your seat. Everyone else gets that. Like live long enough, you'll have that experience. I think most of us, we start off in our adult lives with this um, kind of optimism. And you know, maybe it's Maybe it's blind because we haven't had as many life experiences yet, but, you know, we get to this place where we're sort of optimistic because even if this doesn't go as well as I want it to, I still got, like, plenty of time to do it over again, start over again. Uh, we use the word, like, someday. We say, someday I'm going to, someday I'll, someday we'll be able to. Uh, we use those kinds of, that kind of verbiage a lot in the beginning. But then, okay, this is going to sound, like, really old of me. We start to get to the point where there's a little more life in the rear view, and sometimes we still think someday, but then we start to think things like, man, if I could do that over again, like the more experience we have behind us, the more we start to have that kind of a thought. Uh, start to think, you know, I, I probably would have done that differently if I could. And when Jesus introduces us to this younger son, this younger son seems really assured. I think it's significant that Jesus describes him as being very young. He seems really assured that he knows how to make a great life for himself. And he tells his father, you know what? Just give me my inheritance now so I can take the money and go do the things that are going to make me happy. And he goes off to Viva La Samaria or whatever it was for them. He sets off thinking he knows the way to happiness. But in the end, turns out he was going the wrong way. And we don't have a lot of the dialogue. The story starts with him telling his father, hey, give me my money. And then in the next sentence, he's leaving. But I'm guessing there's probably a little bit of dialogue. Maybe dad's trying to, like, discourage him from making that decision. I mean, that's what I'm doing if I'm, if I'm the father. But he's just sure. No, dad, dad doesn't know. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And there's this subtlety in the story that it sounds so much like me. It's just painful. But he sets off. He takes his dad's money, and he goes, says he goes to a distant land, and he lives his wild life. And I'm thinking to myself, all this money that he's spending, that he's got to, like, travel and do all these things, where did he get that money? He got it from his dad, right? And the clothes that were on his back when he set off, dad bought the clothes and the possessions, whatever he brought with him. Like, he got all of that from his dad, but he's at this point where he just feels self-sufficient. I don't need my dad. And how often do I do that? Right? In the story, Jesus is telling this illustrative story. Obviously, the son is us, and... The father is, is God. Like, how often do I pull that on God? Like, feeling totally self-sufficient um, all the time, if you're wondering. It was kind of a rhetorical question, but um, all the time. But if I drill down far enough and I think to myself, you know, did I choose? I mean, did I work hard to be born into the most affluent society that's ever lived or live in a time where, um, you know, I can just have education and opportunity? Did I choose any of that? You know, I think, like, did Shaquille O'Neal choose to be seven feet tall? No, he was just born a genetic freak of nature. Like, he didn't work for it. That's kind of how I am with God sometimes. 
Truth is, none of us has ever taken a breath that we provided for ourselves. If you just drill down past the surface, it's amazing how many things that we actually don't provide for ourselves. And it's like this. Our kids have no idea how much Brandy and I do for them. There's no way they could. They don't understand like, the realities of adult life and parenthood. It would be unreasonable for me to even expect them to understand all of the things that we do for them. And I just wondered to myself, how often am I like that with God? Probably all the time. And we see that in the story, too, with, uh, with this younger son. In his case, he just loses sight of how dependent he really is on God. And that was the beginning of his road to regret. That's where it all started. Verse 14, Luke 15, 14 said, After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, something a kosher Jewish boy would never do. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So you got to just get the picture. Like, he's in a bad way right now. Like, he's hit the bottom of the barrel. The next verse says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. This is the turning point in this young man's life, in his whole story, when he does what? He comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. I have this friend uh, who has this beautiful example of how this happened in his life. Uh, He's older now. He's married to just a great girl. They have an awesome family. Uh, But he's really open about the fact that when he was younger, when he was a teenager and a young adult, He really struggled with, or maybe not struggled might not be the same word, but the idea of same-sex attraction was definitely on his radar. Like He was definitely went through a period of trying to figure out who he was and who he was going to be in this regard. And uh, and this was something that he he really grappled with in his own life. And he describes how he had this turning point in his life. I mean, obviously now he's married to a woman and uh, is decidedly a heterosexual, but he describes how... As he was in this place of kind of contemplating who he was and and what his decision was going to be here, he realized that if he continued on the path he was on, the destination was going to be a place that he didn't want to be. And he admittedly was interested maybe in sort of figuring out and exploring the things that were on the path, like he was entertaining these thoughts. But he, he knew that if he continued to pursue that, he would eventually be in a place that he would regret he would eventually wish, man, I wish I hadn't gone that direction. So what he did was he turned around. He came to his senses on that, and he went another direction. Most of us are pretty good at getting to the point of regret. It's the turning around and going the other direction. What we can really observe from this young man's story is that when he realized finally that he was on the wrong path, that he was going to end up somewhere he didn't want to be, he came to his senses, and then he resolved to go back to his father. And in the story, the father's pretty awesome because he's there with open arms, and and that's, Jesus is fully making that point as well, that God is there with open arms. And I can tell you that a lot of the people I've met, which has been many now after being a pastor for 13, 14 years, a lot of people who have gone through periods of their life that... um, where they experienced a lot, of gre- a lot of regret, 
they tend to have a similar vein to their story. There's a time in their lives when they were ruled by things like addiction or codependence or greed, lust, insecurity, loneliness, you know, many of the things that just weighed us down. And then there's a moment when they came to their senses and they resolved to go a different direction. It's a really common story. And this is what the young son does. He says to himself, I will set out and go back to my father. He has a moment where he gets this vision that the future God has for him could be better than the one he's currently headed toward. So he resolves to go that direction instead. It sounds like such a simple thing, but isn't it more challenging than that? So much more difficult. He arrives at this place. I'm, gonna, I'm thinking about trademarking this. I don't know. So if you want to use it, you should use it quick. He arrives at this place that I like to call the razor's edge of life change. I got to work on that, make it a little more compact, but the razor's edge of life change. It's a tipping point that we often get to because some people are very early adopters. They like change, but that's a pretty small number of people. For most of us, we have to get to the tipping point where the pain of staying the same becomes worse than the pain of change. Most of us won't change until the pain of staying the same becomes unbearable. That's, that's true for a lot of us, uh, kind of like the Zips things that I was saying before. Uh, most of the time, we don't make significant life changes until the discomfort becomes unbearable, until it's easier to change than to stay the same. And I think something that we can take from this story is the reality that it doesn't have to be that way. God has more for us than that. You think about this son, he gets all the way to the point where he's so hungry that he wants to eat the pig's food. If you've ever been to a pig farm, you do not want to eat their food. I promise you. Uh, he gets all the way to that point, but couldn't he have gone back to his father earlier? I mean, his dad seems like he would have taken him back if he would have maybe just, at the point when he was starting to get low on money, gone, oh, shoot, I'm in trouble here. He, maybe he could have gone back then. He didn't have to get to the point of ultimate desperation, but he's like us. He had to get to the point where the pain of staying the same was worse than the pain of the change, and it doesn't have to be that way. There's a couple things that I just want you to grab onto uh, today in this story while we're, while we're here. The first one is this, that finding your way back to God begins with coming to your senses. Um, my experience has been, it's a lot easier for other people to come to my senses than it is for me to come to my senses. You know what I mean? Like, it's a lot easier to walk around and say, Theo, what are you doing? Than it is for me to look at myself and say, dude, what are you doing? You, you know what I mean? But the journey back to God begins when we come to our senses, just like it did for this young man. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's really significant that that phrase is in there. Maybe the awakening for you today is to know that you don't have to wait until you're in the regret to your eyeballs. You don't have to wait till regret is this deep and the pain is unbearable to go back to your father. God, God's plan for you is not to make you get to that point. The truth is sometimes he will let us get to that point, but, but it doesn't have to be that way. And for some of us, you know, we tend to think, yeah, I'm, I'm good, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm fine. Like, I'm not really in pain. Me and God are good. I mean, I'm here. It's Sunday. I'm at church. Uh, I'm good. I don't really need to change. The problem with that is, in the history of everything that's ever been lost, ever, there was a moment right before it got lost that it wasn't lost. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a moment right before we drift away that we weren't drifting away. And so, if we're just kind of blindly like, yeah, I'm good, I'm, I'm not lost, I'm fine. Uh, well, that's usually what happens on your way to getting lost. And how much easier would it be for us to just 
uh, sort of wake up to our tendency to drift away from God and return to him then than it would be to fully drift away. Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 6. He said, we all, like sheep, go astray. We all, just like sheep, wander away from the safety of their flock and their shepherd. We all wander away from God. Each one of us has turned to our own way. We all have that tendency. How much better is it to just turn back? Uh, Maybe if you're not thinking about yourself, if you have kids, think about your kids. How much more would you like your kids to just come to you and say, hey, I'm struggling with this before their life's on fire? Like, how much better is that for you as a parent? Okay, now think of that in terms of your relationship with God. How much better is it for God if we just come back to him before our life's on fire? I think I probably just made that point way more than I needed to. Maybe you don't have an absolute disaster in your life. But maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum where, like, things are in, in pretty, pretty tough shape, you know? The thing I love about the church, I mean center church, but I mean the, the church globally, um, all people who love, who love Jesus, who have a relationship with God, um, is that it's not an institution, because if it was an institution, I would have to be like a professional Christian who gets everything right, and I'd have to stand here and tell you what you're doing wrong and how to fix it. What I love about being part of the church is that it's a community. And when it's a community, we can all come into this room and say, you know what, I've, I've made some pretty bad choices. Maybe there's some things in your life that are on fire. Me too. Maybe you've done some things you regret. Maybe you've done some things you'd be ashamed of. Me too. And everybody else in here? would say the same thing. Me too. You know what? Maybe you've treated your spouse poorly. I've treated my spouse poorly. Sorry about that, by the way. Maybe, uh, maybe you haven't always been the parent you wanted to be. Me too. Uh, maybe you ate at Zips right after getting a nutrition consultation. Right? There's things like that, some serious, some a big deal, some not, but some of them are ultimately serious. You know what? Me too. And there's a bunch of other people in this room would say, me too. And in the first service, we actually, everyone did say, me too. We actually had like an out loud moment. It was bonding. It was really great. I too have done some things that I'm not proud of. Um, Isn't it awesome that God wants me anyway? Isn't it awesome that he wants you anyway? There's this pastor that I I really, I don't know him personally, but I've read some of his books and uh, listened to him online. He's very prominent. He's also very well respected. His name is John Ortberg. He actually wrote a, um, a disclosure to his church. He pastors a really, really large church. And, um, and it really was to illustrate this point, but he just thought, you know what? I just want to be really open and honest and transparent with the people in my church so that they feel free to be the same way. And I just wanted to read to you this, um, this letter that he wrote to them. <clears throat> he said, I am a mess. On my own, I am powerless over my ego, and my life is unimaginable my, unlo- my life is unmanageable, and I need God. Left to myself, I will waste my one and only life in stupid ways. I will damage and neglect relationships. I will make idols of success and my reputation. Left to myself, I will dishonor my sexuality. I will use words which I'm supposed to use for God to deceive people. Left to myself, I will use people for my own advancement when I'm supposed to serve the church. Left to myself, I will serve myself instead of serving others. Greed will rule my wallet, resentment will fill my heart, pride will govern my choices, and selfishness will dominate my life. Left to myself, I will spend a pathetic existence trying to polish my outer image and hide so no one can see what an egocentric sinner I am on the inside. 
If successful in this, I will go to my grave a respectable fraud. I am a mess, and I need God. Me too. Me too. There's no, uh, there's no honor in being a respectable fraud. I know that none of us wants to be that. The difference between people who just wander off and drift away from God and those who find their way back to God is basically that one of them says, I'm fine, and one of them says, me too. How awesome is it, is it though, that God still wants you? It's pretty incredible stuff. And everything changed for this prodigal son in the moment where he just came to his senses. And the opportunity is there for us, too, to say, me too, to come to our senses. We have the opportunity to say, I'm fine, or we have the opportunity to actually change the path that we're on. And this really brings us just to the second thing that I want to share with you, which really is kind of the big idea for today, is that finding your way to God begins with coming to your senses, but it culminates in turning toward him. It starts with just realizing, okay, this isn't going very well. I'm kind of making a mess of this. But it really, the culmination, the difference maker is when we turn away, when we turn toward God, away from that and toward him. A lot of people can live with regret. It's not that hard to get to the senses part where we go, wow, I wish I'd done this differently. The challenging part is the turning toward God. It's what the Bible calls repentance. It's really like, religious sounding word. And when I say it, you might even think to yourself things like, uh, like shame, penance, I got to work this off. But the word actually means, it literally means in, in Greek, in the original language, it literally means to change direction. It's so funny because the idea of religion in the Old Testament was do this, don't do that. And if you do the wrong thing, you got to somehow, you got to make a sacrifice, you got to work it off. But then Jesus comes along and says, you know what? Yes, I know there's hundreds and hundreds of rules, but how about you don't worry about that right now? How about you just follow me? That's the difference between penance and repentance. Just turn toward God. That's, that's really what he's calling us to. And the son was headed the wrong direction until the moment when he said, I'm going to go back to my father. I think the big idea of the story is that Jesus is calling us back to our father, The trick is, in order for us to actually start over, there has to be a change of direction. And this is where where the water gets a little bit muddy, things get a little stickier for us, but if you're listening, you're in the room or you're listening online and you you want to start over, I'm certain that I don't even need to tell you, I don't have to say out loud the thing that is in the way for you. Isn't it funny how we just have this sense, we know what it is that's coming between me and God. We know what the thing is that God wants me to turn away from. You don't need me to to say that. In all of our lives, those things become apparent where we need a course correction and we just feel the weight of it. And so uh, my experience over the last 13 years, 14 years has been that people don't accidentally drift toward God. They accidentally drift off the other direction. And there's, there's usually this defining moment there's this, uh, this time when we choose, when we decide, you know what, this isn't working. This isn't going to take me where I want to go. This either is going to end in regret or it has ended in regret. So I just want to make this, uh, this simple analogy that I think will um, make the burden of that a little bit easier. And it will also help you take a next step. If you're in a spot where you're thinking, I, I want to start this over. The analogy goes like this. 
Pastor Rick, who just walked out of the room, I wish he would have been here for this. We play golf sometimes together. It's terrible. Uh, I was just kidding, by the way. It's not terrible. I thought someone would surely chuckle that and identify it as a joke, but nope, wasn't that, it wasn't a very good one, apparently. Uh, we play golf together, and there was a time when I could like beat Pastor Rick a lot, most of the time. Um, but maybe five or six years ago, like, we just went opposite direction. He pummels me every time. Uh, in the last 40, 50 times, there he is, 40, 50 times we've golfed together. I've maybe beat Pastor Rick once or twice, but I'm sure he was letting me win. So we'll go out there and we'll play, and I'll be, like, hacking golf balls out into the trees, and he'll make jokes about me swearing when that happens. That's not true. Don't believe those stories. Uh, but sometimes he'll feel sorry for me. And so, you know, I'll just, like, fire this ball out into the jungle. It's just out there in the deep stuff. And he'll say, you know what, man? Just hit another one. Just throw another ball down there. And golf, that's called a, hey, you're good. You're way quicker than the first service. There was, like, one lady in the back who was like, mulligan. It's called a mulligan. It's a do-over, right? You just, you just throw the last one out. didn't happen. You throw down another one, and you hit it, and you play on. Probably he's doing that because he doesn't want to wait 10 minutes for me to find my ball just to hit it farther into the cabbage, but nonetheless, he gives me this do-over. And I think sometimes we have this idea, okay, like Jesus came, he died on the cross, paid for my sins when he did that so that I could have a do-over. But it's actually something much more significant than that because the Bible says that uh, for mankind, uh, it's appointed for us to die once and then we go to judgment, right? That's sort of a convoluted way of saying uh, at the end of this life, we stand before God. And the idea is that we get to take all of our accomplishments or lack thereof and lay them before God, and, and he decides. He's the judge. But what Jesus does is he says, you know what, I'm going to trade scorecards with you. Um, it's not that I'm just going to take yours away and give you a perfect one, but I'm actually going to take yours personally. And that's the significance of the cross. You can, you can read about uh, Jesus' crucifixion in several historical documents. It's not just in the Bible. Uh, the significance of the cross is that when Jesus took that punishment, that execution, he was actually paying for all the poor decisions that you and I have made. So he's, he's not just wiping ours away, but he's actually trading it. It's what, uh, it's what we often refer to as the great exchange. He trades our scorecards. He takes our sin and he endures God's wrath. And in exchange, we get his perfection before God. It's a big concept, but it's pretty cool stuff. It's pretty loving. It's about as loving as one could be. So knowing that, I want to ask you to do one thing for me. We're going to wrap up here, so if you would stand up with me. And if you're just right there where you are, the, the course of your life is just sort of scrolling through, through your mind, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I could really use a do-over. I could really use a new, a new start. One of the big points of the story of the prodigal son is that God makes new starts. He gives new starts every day. You can have that. But a new start isn't just all of a sudden a complete reversal of fortune. A new start is a new start. It's a, it's a redirect. It's a course correction, which means there's going to be ongoing steps in the future. And so what I would love to do in this moment, I'm just going to pray and uh, if you're in that spot where you need a new start, I just want to ask you to pray with me just in the, in the uh, quietness of your heart, in your own mind, and um, consider this a redirection, a, uh, a turning away from and a turning toward God. 
Lord, I understand that in many ways I have been on the wrong course. That's, that's true for all of us. God, we recognize that um, sometimes we know what you want us to do and we choose not to do it. Sometimes we know what's wrong and we choose to do it. We know what's right and we avoid it. God, we, we do that and we just, we just confess that before you, Lord. We understand that our sin has made a gap between us. But God, we're asking you to forgive us and give us a new start. God, if you're, if you're real, I pray you make yourself real in my life today. Lord, that you would help me with this first step of pointing the right direction and that you would help me to stay close to you in the subsequent steps, God, in the days that lie ahead as the, uh, as the work of uh, going through life and walking on a new course happens. God, I pray that you would be my ever-present guide and that as I drift, Lord, you would continue to pull me back. I pray that you would accomplish that in my heart. In Jesus' name, amen.